everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of U2 podcast, where two longtime fans discuss U2 music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience and the perception of U2 and cultural consciousness. Right. Melanie and I, we came of age with U2. We saw it all happen in real time. And as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time or are the haters right after all. That's right. So welcome in everyone to part two of our episode on Zuropa. In part one, we talked about the rushed by U2 standards anyway, uh, making of the album done mostly during a break during the Zoo TV tour. And we also discussed the album's first five tracks. Right. Side one, as it was on vinyl. And now we're going to pick it up where we left off and take a listen to Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car. Okay, unless you take this in the most literal sense, this is one of the several songs on Zeropa open to wildly different interpretations. I mean, I certainly don't think it's a song about a spoiled rich girl with a daddy who cleans up all her messes. Do you? Well, not at least entirely. I don't know. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, I think it works on a number of levels, and not only can be interpreted a number of different ways, it should be interpreted a number of different ways, because maybe it's all true. Uh, daddy is God. Daddy is the devil. Daddy is a sugar daddy. Daddy is heroin. Daddy is fame. Or maybe daddy is the Soviet Union before the fall. I mean, it can't be a total coincidence. The sample at the beginning of the song comes from a record called Lenin's Favorite Songs, issued on Melodia, the Soviet state-run record label, right? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I ever thought about it from that point of view. It's a very interesting take. Um, but yeah, I agree this song is about whatever you might be addicted to that stops you from dealing with the real stuff in life. Um, daddy's the person or thing that, you know, numbs you out, at least in the short term. Uh, you've got the lines, daddy won't let you weep, daddy won't let you ache. And you are a slave to that which you need the most. Right. You know, I really love the mood of this song. It's sexy, dark, and dirty dance groove was something I found unexpected from you two. And I think that uh, distortion of the music and vocals plays really well against the more traditional melody line. Bono called it industrial blues. Yeah, all these disparate parts melded together. Right. And, and there's that silkiness in the vocal delivery of the lyrics, which is perfect for a song about addiction. You know, the whole idea that the devil would be a smooth talker. Yeah. And of course, it was the perfect song for McFisto to begin the encores during the last leg of the Zoo TV tour, a.k.a. Zoomerang, um, which those of us in the nor Northern Hemisphere got to see by way of the recorded version of the Sydney show. Yeah, and I especially love that version of McFisto at the helm and Edge doing these kind of funk guitar flourishes. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, another cool touch production-wise is how in the verses there's reverb on one line, then it's dry on the next, then it's back reverb, and then dry again. Kind of a nice effect. Your And finally, such a brilliant coda with that circular repeating mantra, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, not quite happy days, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I love it. It's so catchy and drives home this idea uh, of this destructive pattern that's just going to be keep repeating itself over and yeah, over Yeah, for sure. Yes. 
Okay, what do we have up next? Uh, we're going to be listening to Some Days Are Better Than Others. Some days are dry, some days are leaky Some days come clean, other days are sneaky Some days take less, but most days take more Some slip through your fingers and onto the floor This is another of the album's miniatures, we're calling it Uh, Definitely not one of the stronger tracks But I do love two things about it Adam's bass line is super groovy And very sexy, I might add. And I love how you always add how sexy Adam's bass parts are. Some of his parts are incredibly sexy, man. Um, But go ahead. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, he does drive this whole song along. And we really should give Adam props here because he once again exhibits an uncanny instinct for when to play and when to drop out. And when Mm. he does drop out, it creates space and tension. I I love that about that, uh, about his playing. Uh, The second thing I love is Edge's heavily treated solo. So cool and slithering and snaky. Uh, Why don't we listen to that solo? song fills um a similar niche to trying to throw your arms around the world um on octung baby it's fun it's less serious um uh you know and the lyrics have quite a lot of cleverness and humor to them and it's you know of note that on an album where most of the lyrics are less personal and written from the point of view of a character in this one bono seems to be talking about himself and you know taking the piss out of himself at times with lines like uh, your skin is white, but you think you're a brother. And of course, some days you feel like a bit of a baby. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, the lyrics aren't exactly poetry, but we were talking about how Bono was going stir crazy at home, unable to turn off his tour head uh, and his inability or refusal to return to domesticity. And I think you're right. This is a little glimpse of home life for him uh, with two young kids uh, bounding about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I I think we both agree that, you know, it's not a bad song. It's just not their best. Um, But, I mean, sometimes songs can just be fun and not about something deeper. Even you two songs. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, This song is a last moment, I would say, to take a breath before the three songs that finish the record, uh, which have a darker complexity to them. Um, and let's get to that. Um, let's get started on that final walk to the end. What's it start with? All right. So we're going to be listening to the first time. Yeah. I have a lover, a lover like no other. She got so, so, so sweet, so. She teach me how to sing Shows me colors Musically, the first time has um, the most in common with the feel of U2 music from the 1980s, certainly than any other song on this record, um, which with its fluid, melancholy, um, and minimally processed guitar, gorgeous piano line, and Bono's plaintive falsetto accents. Um, I think sonically it has a lot in common with the Joshua Tree's running to stand still. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the gospel vibe of the song is also a reminder that this is the band that wrote I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the band first started writing this song, um, that was something they weren't really interested in revisiting. Right, Bill? Right. Uh, the, the song came very quickly, but the band felt it didn't belong on the record. But Brian Eno, the atheist, but actually a huge gospel fan, tells them, I love that song. It must go on the album. Uh, the band trusts Eno's instincts, so they plot to disguise its gospel form. 
Yeah, and certainly one of the ways they do that is the very ungospel dissonant drone feedback that underpins the music. And then, of course, there's that lyrical twist. Right. Bono sings about a lover who teaches him to sing, a brother who is always there for him, and in the last verse, a father who, quote, gave me the keys to the kingdom coming, gave me a cup of gold. He said, I have many mansions and there are many rooms to see. End quote. In Bill Flanagan's book, You Two at the End of the World, uh, which we had referenced on part one, uh, he's there while Bono does the vocals and says, suddenly Bono cannot bring himself to sing the lines he has written about returning to his father's house. Instead, he finishes the verse, I left by the back door and I threw away the key. Of course, um, this is reversing the ending of the biblical parable about the prodigal son. Right, so why don't we just listen to that part? Yeah, let's do it. My father is a rich man He wears a rich man's cloak He gave me the keys to his kingdom coming Gave me a cup of gold He said I have many mansions and there are many rooms to see But I left by the back door And I threw away the key And I threw away the key Melody, I remember our dear friend Joy was outraged by that last verse. I remember us having a... Uh, spirited conversation at a dinner long ago um mm -hmm. and i think she took it literally as a declaration of bono turning his back on his faith instead of channeling a character what say you well first hi joy i hope you're enjoying the episode <laughs> yes. um so but you know getting back to that um i doubt i was savvy enough to have known um, that bono was singing from character's perspective um rather than his own on first listen um and I've always interpreted this song myself with a lot of sadness, um, yeah, which I think makes sense coming from my own worldview um, as a believer. But Bono has said that the song is not about the loss of his own faith, but rather he was writing from the perspective of someone else who had lost their faith. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, this song has always been an enigma. Um, you know, I've joked about how I'm the heathen of the two of us on this <laughs> on this podcast, but you know, I was raised Catholic, and for a lot of us who moved away from the church, trust me, uh, it's not something that's done lightly. It comes with a lot of pain. Um, and as I was preparing for this episode, I remember Bono saying, "This is a song about losing your faith," and that he admired the courage it takes for someone to do that. And when you hear the particulars in the lyrics, it really tells us this is about someone like me with a long-standing relationship with the church, knows the tenants well. Um, so for me, I think the three verses represent the Holy Trinity. The first verse, to a lover, the Holy Spirit, often thought of as a female. The second verse, to a brother, this seems obvious. This is Jesus, this idea of running away, but Jesus is always running right behind you. And the third verse to Father being the Holy Father. And I think that last verse is a rejection of organized religion, uh, the trappings of the Roman Catholic Church. You know, maybe priests wearing a rich man's cloak, being given a cup of gold, which I take to mean communion. Uh, and many mansions, possibly that's gold filled cathedrals of the world, the keys to the kingdom and the adherence to the strict teachings of the church, which brings you the promise of salvation. And so the character walks away from the control of the church and lives on his own terms. Yeah, I like those interpretations um, a lot. Um, I've got a few others to run by you. Yeah, please do. I've been looking forward to talking yeah. to you about this yeah, song. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think if, if, if we're looking at the first verse, um, you can look at it more in the physical world. Um, it might be, might be about the physical love for a woman. Um, if we're talking about biblical references, maybe something out of the Song of Solomon mm -hmm. or metaphysically, um, it, it might be, and this is really 
what my main thought is. It might be about that initial feeling a believer has when they find out about God, the feeling of exultation that comes from that first flush of faith. Um, You know, the second verse might represent um, community in general with other believers, um, or if we want to ground it in another Bible story, um, and this is, again, something that that I've always thought it was about, <laughs> it might be a take on King David's unlikely friendship with Jonathan, um, who was, of course, the son of um, uh, Saul, who was the sworn enemy of David. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the last verse, I agree with your interpretation regarding the rejection of organized religion, really, whether it be the Catholic Church itself or the trappings of um, religiosity in any church, really. Yeah, which then brings us to, for the first time, I feel love. What do you think that line means? I mean, well, following the last verse, um, I've always taken that line to mean um, the finding and feeling of self-love, really. Yeah, I agree with that. But I, I think it's love on his own terms. It's for the first time he gets to feel true, liberated love without someone telling him how it's supposed to be. Um, But again, I mean, you know, as we're talking about, there's a lot of room for interpretation with this one. Yeah, no question. Uh, Well, listen, we really could talk about this song for hours and maybe we we will again (laughs) off mic Uh, and let you know how it turns out. Um, But I guess we should keep moving forward. And now we come to the penultimate track, Dirty Day. You don't know the half of it And a star in Rome I was the bad guy who walked out They say be careful where you aim Cause where you aim you just might hit You can hold on to something so tight I really like this song. Um, Like most of the Zeropa songs, this is born out of a band jam, but where most of the others then get sliced and diced or processed in weird and wonderful ways, Dirty Day stays pretty close to the vest so far as arrangement and production, um, which is probably why it was the one or one of the ones that found an easy place in the set list on the Zoomerang leg. Yeah, and, and and speaking of the song live, I, I think that it's much more successful um, in its live version than on record. Yeah, for me, um, the musical and vocal restraint um, that leads up to that long outro is is a bit one note and maybe too long. Um, I, I think that it feels much more dynamic and tense live. Well, I do agree. It's definitely a live song. Um, Bono called it a father-son song. Although it's pretty twisted, um, actually the lyrics are credited to both Bono and Edge. Um, Anyway, a father returns home to his abandoned son, only to find that he is not recognized. The title is taken from a phrase Bono's dad always used to describe a bad day as a dirty day. Interestingly, he also lifted a few other phrases of his dad's. I don't know you, and you don't know the half of it and no blood is thicker than ink, and love, it won't last kissing time, which I love. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. I do too. I mean, I I think that Bono's use of his father's expressions um, certainly add, you know, a lot of color to the song. And, um, you know, while I know the song is, is the story of a father that's abandoned his son, it's not surprising the lyrics are written by two guys that spend a lot of time away from you know, their own kids on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of angst and guilt baked in with lines like, um, I had a starring role. I was the bad guy who walked out. Oh, definitely. Um, and at least for me, probably one of the more bare emotional moments of the entire record are the lines from father to son and one life has begun, a work that's never done, father to son. Um, if we could, if we could just play that bit. Yeah, let's do it. Father to son, in one life has begun. Oh, 
In fact, this is one of Zeropa's rare examples uh, where Bono sounds troubled and emotional rather than just, you know, giving a kind of observational account. I think the subject matter clearly got under his skin because he hadn't been able to reconcile the effects of his wanderlust um, and the effects it was having on his kids, which I think you touched on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also maybe, you know, Bono's own trouble relationship with his own father is kind of in there somewhere as well. Um, But I think that we both do agree um, that the coda, uh, the borrowing of the title of a a Charles Bukowski's collection of poetry these days, um, run away like horses over the hill is pretty evocative. I think we should listen to that. I definitely think we should. Yes. Okay, we made it to the closing track melody. What have we got here to close it out? Oh, it's the weird and wonderful The Wanderer. I went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones Of a city without a soul said goodbye yeah I went with nothing nothing but the thought of you you know every episode I like to remind the haters about context you know how I love context Mel. I do I do <laughs> so here's today's reminder almost a full year before Rick Rubin was credited with resurrecting Johnny Cash's career with the great series of American recordings uh and of course volume one included maybe the greatest cover of all time nine inch nails hurt um you two had already turned to johnny cash to sing the closing track on zeropa the wanderer yeah and you know sonically i mean this song hits a hard left turn from the rest of the album mm-hmm. um i mean it does have in common with zeropa the the celebration of experimentation um but in such an unexpected way um and i think that it's great but it's only right that we celebrate it as the weirdest song in u2's canon and i mean that in the best way i understand um <laughs> so the story goes bono was having trouble with the vocal for the song and thought of johnny cash who just happened to be playing dublin around this time they asked him down to the studio and he ends up singing as this um old testament survivor out of the book of ecclesiastes uh and at one point the song was even called johnny cash on the moon (laughs) yeah and you know but before we move on to johnny cash which which i really want to um let's talk about the book of ecclesiastes for a sec Mm -hmm. um this is the tie thematically to the rest of the record for me. Ecclesiastes is concerned with the very, very human search for meaning and significance in an unjust and uncertain world. Um, of the song, Bono has said, quote, the song is the antidote to the Zeropa Manifesto of Uncertainty. The Wanderer presents one solution, unquote. Um, And I read this as a quest to satisfy intellectual curiosity, which brings about the messiness and and really uncertainty while looking for God at the same time, Um, you know, which I guess could be the ultimate certainty. Right. Um, Even when those two ideas are very much at odds. Yeah, and I think a lot of U2 fans got very confused by this question of where Bono's faith was by the end of Zeropa. 
which is probably why I like it so much. <laughs> um, right. Okay, back to Johnny Cash. Um, Brian Eno and Flood and The Edge were all against having Johnny sing this song because they felt, you know, the second the listener heard Johnny's voice, it would overwhelm the track and throw off the narrative of the entire record. But Bono got his way. Uh, and I have to say, I got to give him the instinct on this one. I think it was spot on. But I do wonder why Bono lobbied so hard for Johnny's vocal, maybe because the character in the song uses Jesus' exhortation to leave her wife and children and follow him as an excuse to skip out on his responsibilities. wonder if that hit too close to home for Bono right then. Yeah, maybe, maybe, for sure. Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll throw my my thought into the ring um i think bono wanted the freedom to write this story self-righteousness and all without having to pull it off vocally mm -hmm. i mean when johnny cash opens his mouth you don't have any problem believing that he could have walked out into this quest with a bible and a gun in hand with the mm -hmm. word of god heavy on his heart um i mean he's got a lot of authority you know um i don't know if bono could have quite pulled that off certainly not as well as johnny cash did mm. so johnny cash singing is strange enough but then you have this unusual sonic landscape with the heavily treated baseline being the dominant feature what are your thoughts on on the backing track well i mean i think they did a great job creating the backing track which has so many elements of classic contrapolitan you know like the jordanaires inspired mm. backing vocals mm -hmm. and edge's guitar solo which sounds straight out of 1956 Yeah, that wonderfully strange electronica treatment on the bass. I mean, it sounds like it's coming from just beyond the atomic sky described in the lyrics. <laughs> um, personally, I love Johnny on here. Um, it's certainly an eerie finale for an album infatuated with uh, possibility by letting uncertainty be your guiding light. Yeah, I mean, using using Johnny, it was a stroke of genius, for it, sure. It, yeah, it really was. And finally, about 20 seconds after the song fades out, there's the clanging sound of the siren broadcasters use to alert DJs they are transmitting dead air. And so it is. All that remains are radio waves and the distant echoes of Johnny Cash striding through Armageddon. Uh, you know, we've been keeping track of the closing track of all the records. And After Boy in October kind of petered out at the end. They really haven't misfired since. Would you agree? Oh, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Melody, what's your overall thoughts on the album? Well, Bill, you know, when I was prepping for this episode, I kept wondering why I don't listen to this album more. I mean, it's an exceptionally creative record and one that has aged remarkably well, considering all of the synthesizers and treatments used on it. I mean, the only thing I could put my finger on was the feeling um, that there was almost this cool detachment that flows through the album. And maybe that's not what I typically look for in U2 music. Uh, but that said, I think I might have just rediscovered this little gem. I mean, it's not a perfect album, but it's wildly creative, while at the same time being extremely well thought out and intellectually exciting. Yeah. I mean, listen, the records I really love are enigmatic and have a kind of inscrutability, which is why Unforgettable Fire remains my favorite U2 record. And while Joshua Tree and Octane Baby are more fully realized, Zuropa shares what gives Unforgettable Fire its appeal, how it continues to reveal something on repeated listenings. I also love how Zeropa constructs a place where the characters exist, and it's unclear if this place is real or imagined. Or maybe it's this idea of a future still to be written. Maybe more than any other U2 record, it has a voice and narrative so specific to a time and place that runs from start to finish, which I suppose is down to the tight schedule and finite period of time in which the lyrics were written. Yeah, and I mean, those constraints are are part of what makes this album so special, right? I mean, it's it's time capsule of sorts yeah. um, of that singular moment that was the Zoo TV tour. Um, 
a celebration of all the coursing creativity, the madness and masks, while simultaneously examining ideas surrounding media distortion and, as you're mentioning, this idea of unfixed reality. Yeah, I mean, and we see the questions Bono raised on Octu Baby still have not been settled. Bono is still not ready to return from this journey. He's only halfway through. And I like how unclear it is whether he'll make it back. And I think this may be the band's best conceived thematic album, of course, centering on uncertainty. The use of so many characters with different points of view feels disorienting, but thanks to Edge's overall sonic vision, the album has a musical through line that gives it cohesiveness. It's also arguably, for me, maybe the best three-song finish to conclude any U2 record with The First Time, Dirty Day, and The Wanderer. But, you know, I guess with all of this overarching stuff aside, this is a record, um, and the proof is in the songs. And there are some great ones here with amazing lyrics. For me, Zuropa, Lemon, and Stay are the standouts. And Babyface is not. (laughs) (laughs) No, Babyface is not. (laughs) Um, uh, Zuropa, you know, it's kind of a marvel. Um, I love that they recognized they were on a creative role, realized they needed to seize upon it and push themselves to get it done. And yet, listening to it now, here in 2023, we kind of know they'll never make anything this weird and wonderful again. And even if they did intend to, we know from what happened on No Line on the Horizon, they don't have the balls to follow through to the end and live with the weirdness without regrets. Well, <laughs> currently, um, Bono is uh, teasing a new U2 album. But, you know, as U2 fans, we know we, we need to take that with a grain of salt. But what yes. he's saying is he wants to make an unreasonable rock and roll album, um, which I would welcome. But what I would really love is for you to, I know you don't think this is going to happen, but I would love for them to dip into the unreasonable creativity they showed on an album like Zuropa. I I don't think that's where things will end up like you, but man, I would love for them to make an album this deep into their career that fans will dig into and excavate, you know, for years to come. Well, I totally agree with that. Um, So let's talk about the reaction to Zuropa. Well, uh, the album was a success, uh, but not by U2 standards. Especially on the heels of Octung Baby and its five hit singles, only Stay would get on the Billboard Top 100, um, as as we mentioned when we talked about the, that song. It stalled out at number 61. As for Zuropa itself, after a brief moment at number one, it ended up becoming their worst-selling album in the U.S. since October, though they would later beat that dubious record with pop. Yes. Uh, Zuropa actually won a Grammy for Alternative Record of the Year. What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. In any case, they beat out Nirvana's In Utero, R.E.M.'s Automatic for the People, Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream, and Belly's Star. Yeah. Bono showed up for the ceremony, came up to the podium, and rolled his eyes and said the Smashing Pumpkins should have won before saying, quote, I think I'd like to give a message to the young people of America, and that is we shall continue to abuse our position and fuck up the mainstream. God bless you, unquote. Yes, and that sent everyone into a tizzy. He swore (laughs) on the air. Oh, no. (laughs) Remember that? Yes, I do. Um, I don't think he was embarrassed to beat Smashing Pumpkins or Nirvana. He just didn't want to win an award labeled Alternative Music. Uh, because I think he wanted to be seen as mainstream, never hid that, but as a saboteur working within the mainstream. Uh, And as we keep going along in the re-examination of the band's history, we see how from this point forward, the band becomes hyper-focused on maintaining commercial success, whereas these cool detours like Zuropa are regarded, as Edge has said, as nothing more than an interlude, end quote. Yeah, and, and to that point, um, I know you found a couple quotes from Edge and Bono that are really telling and explain so much about the band's creative trajectory from this point forward. Yes. First, Edge, who said, The songs are not classics, but they are more experimental and interesting than most classic pop songs. 
This is something we don't necessarily care to do anymore. We don't go down the road with a piece of music just because it's unusual. That's not enough for us now, end quote. And this from Bono. I thought Zuropa at the time was a work of genius. I really thought our pop discipline was matching our experimentation, and this was our Sgt. Pepper. I was a little wrong about that. The truth is our pop disciplines were letting us down. We didn't create hits, end quote. Yeah. Well, this idea that they felt they couldn't afford to be as experimental because it cost them hits, it's just, it's deeper. It's deeply troubling. Yeah, I mean, come on. Great artists get hits out of pure happenstance. So again, I think it's a shame the band diminishes this as their art period. Yeah, and I'm going to say it for the millionth time. You're you too. Why do you care so much about hits or chasing this elusive idea of remaining relevant? Why? Okay, so let's get back to the tour. Yes, and I have to say, these shows of 1993 in Europe over the summer, and then on Zoomerang in Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. This is the pinnacle of the band's career as a live act, I think, uh, both in the sheer power of the performance and the creativity in elevating the concert experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the tail end of the Pop Mart tour rivaled it. Um, but yes, I, I do agree that the band were certainly in full flight at this point. Now, in part one of this episode, we'd mentioned the band had already been back on tour for a month when they finally finished the record, and almost two months when Zuropa was released on July 5th, 1993. So, Bill, how, in your opinion, were these shows different from the outside broadcast tour six months earlier? Well, the band knew they could push the envelope in Europe, and push they did. With the fall of communism... Borders were opening everywhere, and the promise of a free and open European Union was quickly teetering. The band wanted to confront the rise of fascism and neo-Nazism that was pervading New Europe. But the manner in which the new U2 chooses to do this is particularly fascinating, because it's not exactly a brand new U2, is it? No, it's not. And it, it, it's something that we talked about um, on the last episode. This idea of how U2's reinvention wasn't just about dispensing with earnestness and embracing irony. It was as much about recapturing their experimental and theatrical side, which goes back to Bono's study of method acting and mime, and the experimental side of the band, which was a big part of their early shows, something they abandoned after they got signed to Island Records and started touring the world. Yeah, we had talked about how this derailed their natural creative evolution. Now, Melody feels this was because they followed their spiritual journey, and I think it was because Bono took it upon himself to be this uh, crusader or missionary man on stage trying to find converts. See what I did there with using religious terminology? It was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> In any respect. Um, for the European Stadium Tour, U2 revives its early fascination with the Dadaists, the nonsense art movement that popped up in Europe after World War I. Um, Dadaists would use abstraction to fight against the social, political, and cultural ideas of the time through shock art, um, provocation, and vaudevillian excess. Um, U2 channels the Dadaists' idea of uh, deflating fascists through mockery. Enter Mr. McFisto, a character owing a debt to Dada. And as you know, um, the Nazis set out to, uh, you know, really wipe the floor with the Dadaists. Um, and that was seen by Bono as proof of their potency. It should also be noted that several notable Dadaists died in death camps under Adolf Hitler, who persecuted this kind of, um, you know, quote-unquote, degenerate art. Um, Dada would ultimately meld into surrealism, which many believe is the beginnings of postmodern art. Okay, enough of the art history lesson. <laughs> uh, but I think we both agree Dada, surrealism, camp, cabaret, and performance art are at the heart of the European leg of Zoo TV. And something I think we also agree is not just something the Zoo TV creative team dreamed up, but it was something already in the band's DNA, but had been buried in the 80s. Yeah, uh, indeed. 
Um, okay. Bono knew he had to ditch the mirrorball man and come up with something more European. So enter Mr. McFisto, a devil in gold lame with gold platform shoes, pale makeup, lipstick, and devil horns on his head. Uh, the gold lame suit was another appropriation of something Elvis wore, but it should be noted, uh, Phil Oaks first appropriated Elvis's gold lame suit for his infamous Carnegie Hall show, March 27, 1970, later released as the gunfight at Carnegie Hall. Do you know about that? Actually, I did know about that. That's interesting, Bill. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, but in any case, um, the initial inspiration for McFisto came from the stage musical The Black Rider, which we mentioned in part one of this episode, um, that Bono and Edge saw while attending the Festival Against Racism in Hamburg, Germany in 1993. Interestingly, the McFisto character did not get settled on until the night before the band flew off to Rotterdam for the opening of the European tour while they were still trying to finish Zuropa. Yes, and Bono said, quote, We came up with a sort of old English devil, a pop star long past his prime, and regaling anyone who would listen to him at cocktail hour with stories from the good old bad old days. Uh, there was a certain pathos to him. Gavin Friday said to me, if you want to make a devil, you should have horns. And I said, yeah, well, I'm not wearing horns. I'll look ridiculous. He said, you need proper red horns. And he got them made up. I put them on and it was the maddest looking thing, but it helped. God bless Gavin Friday and his, uh, creativity oh, definitely. Um, still but, um, still ringing true today absolutely absolutely yeah. really really god bless god and friday yeah. um and as mcfisto bono continued his routine of making in concert prank calls that had begun with uh, mirrorball man um, but changed his targets with the location of each show in italy he called alessandra mussolini the italian dictator's granddaughter who was getting into politics and McFisto had 70,000 people singing, I just called to say <laughs> I love you on her answering machine, which is pretty brilliant. Yes, and he called the Archbishop of Canterbury and told him he loved what he was doing and that it was great that the church didn't seem to stand for anything. Um, <laughs> before we leave Italy, though, one more story. Um, during oh. the Italian dates, uh, they played a film of McFisto dressed as the devil walking across Vatican Square muttering under his breath, one day all of this will be mine. Oh, no, I forget. It is mine. <laughs> what in the world did the Italians think of that one, I wonder, you know? <laughs> then, for their remarkable show in Berlin at the Olympia Stadium, where Hitler held his rallies, Bono called German Chancellor Helmut Kohl and thanked him for letting him back in the country before demonically shouting, I'm back! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, also of note, at that Berlin show, they not only incorporate the Triumph of the Will footage, uh, but they add Beethoven's Ode to Joy to the intro of the show, during which Bono adds to his pantomime a goose step and then starts giving the Nazi salute before his other arm slaps it down. I mean, man, that was really freaking ballsy, don't you think? Oh, God, yes. Um uh... And then not only that, but during Bullet the Blue Sky for the Burning Crosses line, they turn the huge crosses sideways and they become flaming swastikas. Uh, the crowd, yeah. who could have been relatives of Germans who were at those rallies in that stadium, gasped. But before um, they kind of lost their shit entirely, Bono <laughs> added, this will never happen again. And then they wildly cheer, which was pretty brilliant. It gave yeah. the Berlin crowd an opportunity to be part of denouncing their past. Pity how incredibly timely this all is again, Melody. Is it just me? Or did you think we'd ever have to remind people Nazis were the bad guys? Sadly, that is a very relevant question, um, which we don't have time to address here. Fair enough. Moving on. <laughs> Okay, getting back to Zoo TV, you uh, two had freed themselves from the weight of this label they'd frankly asked for in the 1980s of trying to save the world. Um, other than a Greenpeace demonstration against the nuclear power plant at Sellafield uh, during the first European leg of the year before, you two had shied away from really any kind of activism. Right, but when the ban was in Verona 
Italy in early July 93, they were approached by an American aid worker named Bill Carter. Now, Carter had seen a television interview on MTV where Bono said the theme of the Zuropa leg was a unified Europe. Carter felt such an aim was empty if Bosnia went overlooked, so he asked you 2 to visit Sarajevo uh, to bring attention to the war. In a weak moment, Bono said he'd try to get the band to play a concert in Sarajevo. They even tried to keep it from Paul McGuinness, but when McGuinness got wind of it, he impressed upon uh, Bono that a concert there would make them and their audience targets for Serbian aggressors. Yeah, and as a compromise, the band agreed to use the tour's satellite dish to beam in live video transmissions to the shows to give a spotlight to the victims of the conflict. Now, these moments of the show didn't always land well because it was such a jolt of sobering reality in the midst of this spectacle of good times and smirking irony. Probably the most excruciating moment came during the band's concert at Wembley Stadium when three women in Sarajevo told Bono via satellite, we know you're not going to do anything for us. You're going to go back to your rock show. You're going to forget that we even exist and we're all going to die. Larry said sitting there on his drum stool during this was the most excruciating moment for him ever at a U2 show. I can only imagine. Yes. But, um, you know, I did want to say here's another bit of context for the U2 haters. You know, U2 didn't have to bring this on themselves. They knew it jeopardized all that they had worked to undo, you know, from the Super Series 80s concerts. But the fact is the band had to purchase a satellite dish to be sent to Sarajevo and had to pay a hundred thousand euros fee to join the European Broadcast Union to make this happen. So it wasn't just a little dalliance. It came at a very high cost, literally, both financially and to their newly liberating image. So we do want to note that the band finally did get to Sarajevo in 1997, um, and also that a lot about what we, we were just talking about is the subject of the film Kiss the Future, um, which is based on the book by Bill Carter, um, and that is produced, amongst others, by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Yeah. Nice little uh, uh, closing of the circle there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so towards the end of the last leg of the Zoo TV tour, the band planned on doing a recorded souvenir, as it were, in the form of a worldwide satellite broadcast of the gig in Sydney on November the 27th, 1993. Now, by this point, while the shows were a huge success, the band's psyche was fraying at the edges. Um, Edge had been hiding in work to distract himself from the failure of his marriage, Bono had been channeling his wanderlust into the many masks he was wearing on tour in the name of making art. Um, and even Larry said he was going a bit bonkers and had taken to traveling separately to gigs on motorcycle. <laughs> right. And let's remember the smash success of Octune Baby and Zoo TV had drawn the attention of another level of celebrity, including Bill Clinton, Hollywood megastars like Sean Penn, Mel Gibson and Winona Ryder. And as we mentioned in our discussion of Babyface, they had befriended supermodels like Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, and Christy Turlington. This had started earlier in the year when Bono dragged Naomi Campbell to a farewell dinner for Ellen Darst, a key member of the principal management, because he knew Adam fancied her. This led to Adam and Naomi becoming engaged and with it some crazy tabloid attention. But by the Zoomerang leg, Adam and Naomi's relationship was fracturing and his parting was getting more concerning. Yeah, and, and then he apparently had an alcoholic blackout um, and ends up too out of it to play the band's November 26th show in Sydney, which was the dress rehearsal for the next night's broadcast. Um, his bass tech, Stuart Morgan, fills in. Uh, but, you know, I mean, this is a very big deal. And for the first time, the perception of Adam as the party boy who could still pull it together is fractured. Um, but within a couple of weeks left of the tour, um, the band decides to bookmark it onto the tour's end. 
Yes, but it did awaken the discussion about reallocating their split of the profits, which to that point were evenly split between the band and Paul McGinnis, a discussion which allegedly was first broached before the making of Octane Baby and which had put such a damper on the early sessions. As for the Sydney broadcast, Adam does pull it together and ends up being a marvelous success, um, and that documents the overwhelming long-term impact of the Zoo TV era. It should be noted, while it took a series of stops and starts over the next several years, Adam does indeed get sober and has been so for a very long time. Good on you, Adam. Okay, so to wrap up this episode... Uh, Zoo TV ends in Tokyo at the end of 1993. It was a remarkable journey, reaching dizzying creative heights and succeeding in recasting the band um, as brand new. Uh, they were not only just the biggest band, but they were the coolest big band with the most interesting new ideas. Their instincts were spot on and they survived where a lot of their contemporaries were rendered obsolete. But where do they go from here? Um, you know, for the first time in their history, they take an entire year off to detox from the overstimulation of the tour and try to figure out their next move. Melody, are we going to do an episode on the Passengers record they did with Eno? Oh, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Larry's calling and says, don't bother. It's indulgent shite. <laughs> well, I'm going to say it's really not a U2 album. So that's why we're not doing an episode on that album. Oh, heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a full four years from Zuropa to Pop, which I'm really looking forward to talking about. Me too. Um, but it's not easy getting there because it's never easy with U2. Now, is it? That's right. But we'll get to all of that next time on the Into the Heart of U2 podcast. 